You are listening to the Catholic Thinkers Podcast, a free treasury of instruction in the Catholic intellectual tradition. If you enjoy this lecture, please visit us at catholicthinkers.org forward slash donate. This course is from our International Catholic University Classics Collection, originally recorded between 1995 and 2005. In the last lecture, we were focusing in on the idea of the recapitulation of all things by Christ and in Christ. In this fifth lecture, I'd like to turn to another crucial topic for the theoretical consideration of our course, namely the topic of grace. And then in subsequent lectures, number six through 12, we'll try to turn to more practical aspects of our topic of the theology of the spiritual life. Grace. Mindful that we cannot achieve our end simply by our own abilities, we need divine assistance. And grace is the theological term for this divine aid. And we begin simply by quoting the Catechism of the Catholic Church. Grace is favor, the free and undeserved help that God gives us to respond to his call to become children of God, adoptive sons, partakers of the divine nature and of eternal life. This lecture will try to consider grace under several headings, participation in the life of God, the indwelling of the Trinity, the types of grace, sanctifying grace, actual grace, the infused virtues, and the gifts of the Holy Spirit. These are classical ways of dividing the question and terms I think that will be of help in our consideration. First, some general remarks. As the Catechism says, Grace is a participation in the life of God. In one sense of the word, the more strict sense, grace is uncreated grace. Namely, it refers to the inner life of God as he himself lives it. And then, secondly, as created grace, as he communicates that life to his creatures. We were already speaking about the uncreated grace that is the divine life within the Trinity, when we were focusing upon those characteristic loves that mark each of the divine persons, the great generosity of the Father, the great receptivity and docility and gratitude of the Son, and the kind of delight and glory that the Spirit takes in the perfect giving from the Father and the perfect receiving of the Son. In the more familiar sense of the word, created grace, as some benefit that is freely bestowed upon us creatures by God, Grace refers to the effect that God produces in souls by the way in which God is present to us, especially as a kind of help in weakness or distress. In both cases, the function of grace is to make us capable of living a life that belongs properly to God alone, but that he has chosen freely to share with us. One can see this rather directly in a grace like the grace of faith which gives us to know the reality of God's existence and the reality of his love, even though we have never seen God directly or come to know him yet by any of the normal routes by which we come to know everything else. We never see God in the flesh and see him with the senses. Consider the passage, for instance, from the second letter of St. Peter, chapter 1. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, 
that through these you may escape from the corruption that is in the world because of passion and become partakers of the divine nature. This is a wonderful and powerful grace to begin to have the life of God flowing within us. While irrational creatures can be said to participate in the divine perfections simply by having being, by doing the things that their nature directs them to do almost automatically, the remoteness of this similarity to God is but a vested, but a footprint compared to the much more explicit manner in which rational creatures are able to be the images of God and to bear and reflect the likeness of God by their spiritual soul and its powers. Hence, human beings are said to be made in the image of God and need to be restored to the likeness of God by having grace infused within them, by cooperating with it. The souls of those justified by the grace of faith are called, in that passage that we were reading just a moment ago, they are called the adopted children of God. They have become God's spiritual heirs and have come again to reflect that image which they are. Or consider this passage from Romans chapter 8. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery in order to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of sonship when we cry, Abba, Father. It is the Spirit himself bearing witness within our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then we are his heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. Now the only Son of God, the Father by nature, is the eternal Word, and he has received the fullness of divinity. All that the Father is, except that relational quality of fatherhood. We become the children of God by adoption, through the sanctifying grace we receive at baptism. For us, it is a spiritual birth that begins the regeneration of divine life in us, a spiritual life that had been lost with original sin and further obscured by our actual sins. Consider that passage from the first letter of St. John, chapter 3. See what love the Father has given us, that we should be called the children of God. And so indeed we are. The heritage that has been given to us by adoption will eventually, in its fullness, satisfy all our longings and our desires. It consists of the beatific vision and the eternal happiness of being with God in heaven. Although the grace of a share in divine life is entirely a free gift on God's part and not something that is owed to us by any merits of our own, it does have the wonderful effect of making us co-heirs with Christ and gives us the capacity to act in ways that are pleasing to God, such as, as we were saying in a previous lecture, learning how to love with the love that is charity. Grace, St. Thomas Aquinas tells us, does not destroy or replace nature, but rather it perfects it and it elevates nature. The nature in question here is human nature. Now this is a topic that does belong to spiritual theology, but it's a topic that is dealt with in other courses that are offered by the International Catholic University. And so I'll let the details go for those other courses on the fullness of anthropology and human nature. But simply by way of summary here, we note that each human being is a composite, 
a composite of body and soul, matter and spirit, united as one person. The type of soul that is found in human beings is spiritual in nature, and thus is capable of existence after death. But during this life, the soul serves as the substantial form of our body, what gives us ongoing unity and what makes all the powers by which we operate able to operate. The vital powers that are typical of human nature manifest life in us at various levels, vegetative levels, the sensitive levels, and ultimately the rational levels. The supernatural order, on the other hand, that we are considering especially in this theology of the spiritual life, is not something that simply springs up from us by virtue of what is natural, but rather the supernatural is something which transcends all of our vital powers. Grace comes to us as a free gift from God, something that God works in us, and yet he works in us through what is natural to us. He works it through the vegetative level, through the sensitive level, and then in some very special ways through the rational level, so as to bring us to a perfection in himself and a happiness in himself that we could never achieve on our own, however well we tried and however much we did succeed at the natural level. To try to plumb this mystery a little more, let's turn to the topic of the indwelling of the Trinity within us. In order to correct the notion that grace is somehow limited only to merely occasional acts of divine assistance, it will be helpful to consider the doctrine that the Trinity dwells within us from the moment of our baptism. One might see on this subject, for instance, John chapter 14 in various places. Let me quote a bit. And I will pray the Father, Jesus says, and he will give you another counselor to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. If a man loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our own with him. One sees in that text from St. John the indwelling of the Spirit and of the Father and the Son, and hence the dwelling of the Trinity within us. One also finds this kind of understanding in the first letter of St. John, in the first letter of Corinthians, and the second letter of Timothy. And these are various of Scripture's ways of expressing that God dwells within the soul in this life of divine grace. As the Council of Trent explained, those who fall into mortal sin are in dire straits, to quote the Council, after they have received the gift of the Holy Spirit, they have not been afraid to destroy knowingly the temple of God and grieve the Holy Spirit. That's in the decree on justification. Hence, it's extremely important to abide in grace and to let the Trinity continue to abide in us, for mortal sin destroys that. What is it that God does when dwelling within us? The most important thing that God does is that he communicates himself to us. He gives us a share in his nature and in his life, a share by which our own loves can be restored to the likeness that they are meant to have from all eternity a likeness that does exist within Christ, but a likeness that was disordered by original sin and then confounded and compounded by each act of actual sin. As Thomas Aquinas notes, quote, 
by the gift of sanctifying grace, the rational creature comes to be perfected so that it can freely use not only that created gift, but even enjoy the divine person himself." Unquote. Let's turn next to some of the kinds of grace that are most crucial. On the side of God, of course, grace is ultimately one and there are no divisions, for it is His own divine life lived within the Trinity. But for the sake of our understanding, various divisions have been suggested by theologians, and distinctions is the way in which we often make progress in the intellectual life. They propose these divisions for the sake of better understanding the mystery of God's gift of supernatural life. The primary type of grace that they have identified is called habitual grace, or more frequently, sanctifying grace. This is the grace by which we are adopted as children of God. This is the grace by which we are made heirs of heaven. Sometimes it is called habitual grace because it abides within us somewhat like the habits that come to us in the course of our normal life. When we think about the habits that we acquire because we've done something repeatedly or that we've really focused on something so that we've learned how to do it well, we sometimes speak of these things as second nature to us. First nature refers to what we're given, what we do simply by virtue of the way in which we're made. And habits come about within us and come to be second nature because they are something that are so deep within us, something that are the ways by which we just typically operate. Sanctifying grace is intended to be permanent within us, and hence it is called habitual, something that comes to dwell in us like a habit. But it comes to dwell in us not by virtue of our own efforts, the way in which those natural virtues, like the moral virtues that we acquire by such hard work, rather they come as the bond of union that is given to us by God as a bond of union with the soul, and unfortunately, something that can be lost by the commission of mortal sin. In addition to sanctifying grace, we also think about actual graces. These are understood by analogy with sanctifying grace. These are the things that are those special aids from God in our moments of need and in our moments of weakness when He comes and gives us the help to act as we should. These actual graces are related to the very ways in which we freely choose to cooperate with God, and they testify to our need, in fact, the need that even the most just person and even the greatest saint has, to constantly ask God for special help, to avoid sin, and especially to persevere in friendship with God. St. Augustine, for instance, has a wonderful treatise on the gift of perseverance, and he urges us constantly to pray for this grace of perseverance. I turn next to another division within the general topic of grace, namely the topic of the infused virtues. One of the ways that God chooses to assist us, beyond those specific graces given for particular moments, and beyond those absolutely basic and profound and fundamental things like the supernatural life of faith and hope and charity that come to us as the abiding and habitual graces, yet another way in which grace comes to us is in these infusions of the habits of virtue, that is, dispositions to act rightly. And this is a part of any good course in ethics or good course in moral theology. At the natural level, there are virtuous habits that we are able to acquire by repeated choice to act in a given way. 
Some of the habits, of course, that we acquire are automatic habits. Maybe, for instance, when you learn to type. I always think of when I was first learning to type, of course, and it seemed like I was using a biblical method, you know, seek and ye shall find. But eventually, when one gets the habit, one can type and one doesn't need to think about where the letters are. Or if you have someone who's a fine pianist, well, you don't need to think about where the notes are, but rather you can put all your energy and attention into choosing the modulation and the loud and the soft and the speed so as to play a piece of music very beautifully. On the other hand, there are habits that we do acquire that are mastery habits, habits that are matters of increasing our powers of choice and our powers of control, our powers to decide and determine how we will live our life. These in particular are the moral virtues, things such as justice, courage, temperance, prudence, or practical wisdom. When Aristotle discovers these things and describes them, he thinks of each of them as a kind of a peak of excellence between excess and defect, excesses being the kind of vices. So if one were to take an example of something like courage, there is the matter of responding to situations of dangers in ways that are exactly right, not being rash and overbold, not on the other hand being paralyzed by fear, but getting it exactly right. And in these cases, it is a matter of acquiring them, acquiring them by thinking and coming to understand what it is that we must do and how we ought to respond by appropriate kinds of boldness in the face of fear, or in the case of something like temperance, an appropriate restraint on our pursuit of pleasure, neither giving ourselves wholly to pleasure, nor pretending or holding that there was no such thing as pleasure, making ourselves insensitive to pleasure, but rather we must cultivate this habit of choosing the right response at a given time. Admittedly, these things will vary somewhat, and so in a question of temperance, getting it exactly right will vary depending on how much one weighs, on one's physique, on one's gender, on how much one has had to eat, on one's mood. And yet there will be a right range of response that will be the temperate response, neither excessive nor deficient. And as we know in the times when we ourselves have grown and learned what temperance required, these are things we can pass along to our children and to people whom we're trying to teach, partly by knowledge and partly by communicating what it is that is required, but also it is a matter constantly of practicing in that particular virtue and choosing well so that eventually we get what is properly a habit, a habit recognized by the times when the action will come with ease and regularly and with a certain efficiency and success. On the other hand, these times when we have achieved a moral virtue by virtue of our habit is something that we can claim, at least to a certain great extent, as being of our own doing, perhaps aided and assisted by parents or by good teachers. But the experience of the saints and the reflection of theologians within the church has made it very clear that God sometimes infuses virtues that we have not acquired on our own, perhaps we could have. God can infuse courage or can infuse temperance or can infuse justice. And in those particular cases, we could have gotten it on our own, but maybe because of some weakness, we never have, and God can choose to infuse that gift. On the other hand, there are also virtues which God may choose to infuse in us that we could never have gotten on our own. No matter how hard we try, and don't some of the great atheists of history testify to this, we can never believe in the grace of faith on our own. We can't hope or we can't truly love with the grace of charity merely on our own strength. 
But these are things which come, and come only because God has chosen to give the grace of faith and of hope and charity in the ways that he has chosen to give it. More will be said on each of these virtues, faith and hope and charity, when we get to lecture 10. But here, it is simply important, I think, to note that God's gift of grace can supernaturalize our human powers. That is, God can come choose to perfect and to elevate a natural power well beyond its own natural strength and make them capable of such supernatural acts as the acts of charity. When God chooses to infuse a virtue, what we experience is a gain in a facility, a gain in ability to act virtuously. Perhaps because God has given us a greater receptivity, a greater docility, a greater willingness to follow him in the light of faith. But what we also regularly gain when God has chosen to infuse these virtues is a new restoration of the order of our loves toward loving God and loving our neighbor in a way that is proper. One can't help but think, for instance, of St. Augustine when he's commenting on the Sermon on the Mount and he's explaining both in his treatise on the Sermon on the Mount or in his wonderful book, De Doctrina Christiana, on Christian education. And he's talking about how the order of loves ought to be. One, of course, ought to love God with all our mind and heart and soul and strength. And it's very clear to him that nothing else should be loved for that. Hence, everything else, lower than ourselves in the whole universe, ought to be loved with a kind of love of usefulness, loved with the same kind of response that its order of being deserves, loved in a way that it will lead us in a way that is useful to salvation. But loving our neighbors is the thing that is at first perplexing to him. And yet what he insists is that the two great commandments has it right. We are to love our neighbor as ourself precisely because we see in neighbor and in self the very image and likeness of God and show should love these with the kind of love with which we ought to love God's reflection. And yet St. Augustine is so mindful in the course of that treatise on the Sermon on the Mount and in his extensive book in De Doctrina Christiana that we could never do these things on our own. And so he leads us through the Sermon on the Mount toward that culmination, the same culmination that Pope John Paul II focuses on in the first chapter of Veritatis Splendor, namely that these things which could seem like they are utterly impossible to us merely on our own strength, but everything, Jesus teaches us, is possible with God. So too, the great importance of these infused virtues as well as all the gifts of grace. When God has chosen to infuse a virtue, that person may well find that various obstacles have been removed or certain disorders in the order of one's loves have been corrected. And yet, by the great mystery of grace, freedom is never lost. Freedom is not eliminated by the aid that is given. And this is an extremely interesting thing to ponder in the mystery of God, namely that all of our loves are always directed toward the good, toward what we perceive as good. And yet none of the things that we ever perceive in this life is ever an infinite good. And so at least in principle, our freedom remains. If we did see God in the fullness that we will see him in the beatific vision, at that point, there is nothing else that we would want. But our freedom in this life in a way is protected by not seeing God directly and instead being given these various helps and assistance that is grace, supernatural grace, actual graces, the infused virtues 
things that remove obstacles, reorder our loves, and gives us those other assistances that comes with having some of the divine life flowing within us. From the side of God, the purpose of such gifts is always, first of all, His own divine glory. He allows us to join Him in that, and as we said in the very beginning of this course, the purpose of the spiritual life is precisely so that we give glory to God. Our own goal, then, in receiving these graces is the better to give God the glory, and then, secondarily, to enjoy the sanctification and the salvation that comes with it as the means, so that we might have everlasting happiness with God in heaven. It is the Holy Spirit who bestows on us these graces won for us by Christ, using such instrumental means as the sacrament of baptism, as a way of bringing about our justification, as a way of restoring us to the divine friendship by rightly reorienting us toward our divine destiny. The Church has also identified from the Scriptures the various gifts of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit Himself is God's greatest gift to us, and the Spirit comes to dwell within us, as we said, by sanctifying grace. But from this one gift that is the Spirit, there are a number of special gifts. Traditionally, they are counted as seven, and they're rooted in the text of Isaiah 11. In that text, admittedly, there are six gifts that are listed, and then the gift of fear is mentioned twice. But the Church adds to the list that is given in Isaiah the gift of piety, that gift of great devotion to God. Among the differences between the infused virtues and these gifts, when each of them are taken as a group, theologians have noticed that the gifts, when they come, always operate as very direct gifts of God. The Holy Spirit is operating directly, while the virtues, even when they are infused in us, are much more at our discretion. They have an existence within us in an habitual way, and hence they have within us a kind of an ongoing strength that we can use in various moments of choice. Four of these gifts pertain especially to our cognitive powers. Understanding, knowledge, counsel, and wisdom. Understanding is the gift of deeper insight into divine truths, when we really know, especially know in the heart, what these things mean. When, for instance, one comes by only the gift of God to understand how fully it is that God does love us. The gift of knowledge concerns proper judgment about the truths of the faith. And so when we say that we have been given some of the gift of knowledge of our faith, admittedly some comes from the elbow grease of studying hard, but some of it also comes by way of divine gift, so that we come really to judge that it is true that the things that are said in the creed, for instance, are in fact the case, great mysteries as they remain. Third and fourth, wisdom and counsel. These have a very practical aspect. For wisdom perfects our power of judgment so that it operates according to divine norms. And the gift of counsel gives us docility to divine direction in our own life and some discretion in our own deliberation about action and what advice to give to others. The other three gifts are very highly suited to our appetitive powers. Piety communicates a filial readiness for devout worship of God while fear is something that takes our emotions, especially our irascible emotions, so that they can be used for enduring suffering and difficulty for God's sake. And then finally, the gift called fear of the Lord. This is a gift that is perhaps the one that is most misunderstood today, and yet the entire tradition of biblical wisdom literature always insists that fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. 
It provides a reverence and love for God that steadies us in avoiding sin or in growing overly attached to created things, and thus something that tempers our emotions of pleasure. In addition to the gifts, there are the fruits of the Spirit that St. Paul lists in his letter of Galatians. He lists nine of them. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. He does so listing those nine fruits of the Spirit in contrast with the 15-some fruits of the flesh. He thinks of them, I think, as fruits especially because they give us great spiritual delight in what they produce as a kind of anticipation of eternal happiness and beatitude. We might close this lecture then with just considering the text that comes from the beginning of St. Matthew, to which I refer you, when the Lord gives his various beatitudes. For there we have in summation what the spiritual life is all about. It is wise, I think, to remember and to read those beatitudes and to consider them a summation of the spiritual life. We hope you enjoyed listening to Catholic Thinkers. Please visit us at catholicthinkers.org forward slash donate to help us keep this content free.